Mockingbirds. Made possible by the generous support of the Birdwatchers General Store. Orleans Cape Cod. Birdwatchersgeneralstore.com. By L.L. Bean. Inspiring you to get outdoors. LLBean.com. By Celestron. Offering binoculars and scopes for birders of all levels. Celestron.com. By Birds and Beans Shade-Grown Bird-Friendly Coffee. Birdsandbeans.com. And by Chimani. Visiting a national park? Let Chimani guide you. Chimani.com. Good morning. Welcome to our show number 630. Dear Talking Birds listeners, did you know that the week before last was Hemp History Week? Now, why would we even mention that on a show about birds and conservation? After all, hemp, cannabis sativa, has been known to be used as a recreational drug and a medical drug in the form of marijuana. But there are big differences between psychoactive hemp and industrial hemp. Some strains of the plant, they tell us, can have almost none of the psychoactive chemical, while other strains may contain lots of it. Well, this little backstory from the folks at HempHistoryWeek.com may serve to explain why this might be a topic fit for our Talkin' Birds venue. A little late 19th century pastoral music, please. In the winter of 1895-96, bird-feeding pioneer Elizabeth Davenport of Brattleboro, Vermont, fed the birds at her window a type of seed full of fat, protein, and carbohydrates. Yes, it was hemp seed, and it was widely available at the time at feed and grain stores, and so was quickly adopted by early wild bird feeding proponents as a main ingredient in their bird seed mixes. Even the great Roger Tory Peterson weighed in, saying, in a mixture of cracked corn and smaller seeds, hemp always goes first. And so it went for several decades, until 1937. In that year, the Federal Marijuana Tax Act came along, and with the exception of the Hemp for Victory campaign of World War II to provide rope and such for the war effort, hemp slipped away as a birdseed of consequence in the U.S. And then the Controlled Substances Act of 1970 made things even harder for hemp. Fast forward to 2017, organized business groups and even state and federal agencies and lawmakers are working on ways to revive industrial hemp production in the U.S. for health food, body care products, eco-friendly textiles, clothing, auto parts, building materials, and birdseed. Hemp also shows promise as an agent for regenerating depleted soils, sequestering carbon dioxide, and preventing erosion. In any case, an organization called Vote Hemp, working to change state and federal laws to allow commercial hemp farming, has followed last year's growth of hemp crops planted in 15 states, with numerous universities conducting research on hemp cultivation and increases in state hemp licenses issued across the country. Industrial hemp cultivation is now legal in 32 states, which have lifted restrictions on hemp farming and may license farmers to grow hemp in accordance with a section of the latest farm bill. So if this pace keeps up, hemp might still become once again a standard in bird feeding. No word if hemp seeds help birds fly particularly high, but we'll definitely have to check with Mike O'Connor down at the Birdwatchers General Store 
on Cape Cod to see what he thinks about all of this. And he must be thinking about what this would mean for bird seed sales if it turns out that hemp seeds give birds the munchies. That's the sound of our mystery bird. And here's a little preview of our mystery bird contest coming along a little bit later in the show. So we'll give you some clues. You're hearing the sound of the bird. It's a small songbird about four to five inches long with a gray head, plain olive green back and wings, a yellowish throat, breast and belly, and a white eye ring. Our bird, which feeds almost exclusively on insects, breeds over much of the northern U.S. and Canada. But it's one of the birds that we'll mention here as a species that doesn't regularly nest in the U.S. city for which it's named. A little preview of our mystery bird contest coming up a little bit later. Last call for free coffee. That's right, last call for a free big bag of birds and beans, bird-friendly, shade-grown coffee. We're giving away a bag a week all through this month, and for a chance to win, all you have to do is subscribe to our Talking Birds newsletter, The Trumpeter. Sign up where it says subscribe on our website, TalkingBirds.com. That's TalkingBirds.com. We think you'll like our newsletter. Subscription is completely free, and of course, you can cancel at any time. We continue to be grateful indeed for all the wonderful support being provided to our show by our Talking Birds ambassadors, folks who are spreading the word about Talking Birds to their friends and neighbors and associates. And this morning, we'd like to thank Margaret Kent in Plimpton, Massachusetts, just down the road from our Marshfield studios. She says she loves the idea of listener participation. Well said, and thank you so much, Margaret. And even closer to home, thanks to Janice Dayton, right here in Marshfield, Massachusetts, who's also passing the word along about our show to her brother down in South Carolina. Thank you, Janice. And even farther south, we find our newest Talking Birds ambassador, Chris Johnston, in Metairie, Louisiana, nestled there between Lake Pontchartrain and the Mississippi River. Chris heads up the communications committee of his Louisiana Master Naturalists local chapter, and he says he'll be sharing the news about Talking Birds with his group. So many thanks, Chris. Well, Talking Birds listeners, please consider representing your state or city or town by joining our Talking Birds Ambassadors program and handing out some of our info cards to your friends and associates to spread the word about our show and about birds and conservation. Easy to do and easy to sign up for. Just click on the contact button at TalkingBirds.com and choose the Become an Ambassador option. That's the contact button at TalkingBirds.com. Choose the Become an Ambassador option. Still to come on our show today, we'll find out about an exciting new program called Bird Sleuth. It's for students in grades K through 12, and it comes from the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. We'll find out about it from its program manager, Jennifer Fee, who will be with us on this morning's show. Plus, our man, Mike O'Connor, who knows about as much about backyard bird feeding as anybody on the planet, will be here to enlighten us about blue jays. Are they really the bullies they're made out to be? That's in our Let's Ask Mike segment. And up next, the bird that some call the chocolate chickadee is today's featured feathered friend. Ah, yes, the name game. We often talk about birds with misleading names, like the Nashville and Tennessee and Cape May warblers, all of which you'll have some trouble finding in the places mentioned in their names. But today's featured feathered friend is different, with a descriptive common name that is spot on, because this bird is indeed found where its name suggests it should be, the Boreal Chickadee. 
bird whose range is almost entirely restricted to the boreal forests of Canada and Alaska, along with the northern edges of the most northern lower 48 states. Boreal chickadees have gray-brown upper parts with a brown cap and grayish wings and tail, mostly gray face with white on the sides and a black throat. Their underparts are white with brown on the flanks to go with a short dark bill, short wings and long notched tail. Boreal chickadees forage on conifer branches or probe into tree bark, eating mainly insects and seeds, which they sometimes store for later use. And they often forage in small flocks that include other small bird species. It's been said that the distinctive nasal vocalizations of the boreal chickadee sound a bit like a black-capped chickadee with a head cold, like this. And unlike the black cap, the boreal chickadee doesn't have a whistled song. The boreal chickadee's many nicknames include Chick Chick, Filady, Brown-capped Chickadee, Chocolate Chickadee, and Acadian Chickadee. Also, Hudsonian Chickadee, a moniker that hints at its scientific name, Peacily Hudsonicus. It's today's Talkin' Birds featured feathered friend, the boreal chickadee. Thanks again for being with us here for our show, number 630. Please do visit our website, TalkinBirds.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at TalkinBirds. Jennifer Fee is the manager of Bird Sleuth, the K-12 through program at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology based in Ithaca, New York, and she joins us on the phone right now. Good morning, Jen. Good morning, Ray. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Great to have you on the show with us, Jen, and to learn about this program. And I had the pleasure of meeting you up at the L.L. Bean Maine Audubon Birding Festival a couple of weeks ago, where you were telling folks about the program. Bird Sleuth kind of sounds like the name of a video game to me, but it's... Uh... <laughs> it is, yeah. It, uh, we named it Bird Sleuth because we really liked kind of the crime solver aspect, mm -hmm. which is the kids like to solve mysteries, so... That's where bird sleuth was uh, originated. All right, makes sense, but it's clearly uh, more than that. So give us an overview, if you would, of the program and uh, its goals. Sure. Um, I was hired by the Cornell Lab of Ornithology about 14 years ago, and the original uh, idea behind bird sleuth was to get kids involved in the eBird Citizen Science Project because eBird had just launched. Mm -hmm. and tell us, about, so, tell us quickly about eBird, Jen, for those who aren't familiar with it. Sure. eBird is the world's largest bird checklist system. You can count birds wherever you are and send them. It's now a global project, um, and the data is used by our scientists at the lab to tell where birds are, how their populations are doing, and for kids to participate in that kind of study is really motivating for them. You know, they're not just going outside to look at birds or to observe nature, but they really love that they're going outside to count birds and then they say, oh my gosh, you mean the, the data that we're collecting? Scientists really use, yeah. they really care about it. So yeah, they do. anyway, kids really enjoy, I think, and get a lot out of that personally. Mm -hmm. So how do you get the programs into the classrooms? How do teachers typically use them? Well, you know, 
birders are everywhere and educators are not immune to the birding bug. So certainly our early implementers were um, people who loved birds, who loved outdoor education. But over the years, we go to a lot of science conferences and we talk to a lot of people and just say, hey, this is a great way to teach the science that you need to teach mm. and use birds as the inspiration. And, you know, I think teachers recognize, too, that birds are an ideal organism to study because they're everywhere. Like mm -hmm. the most urban environment, you can find birds to count and to study. Just curious, do you, are you able to go directly to teachers? Do you have to go through administrations and all that? Does it get kind of complicated that way? That's a great question. Um, we try now more and more to work with districts and science coordinators at schools to do our outreach, but most of our outreach at this point really is kind of teacher to teacher, and we've got a lot of teachers spread across the country. We call them our, our ambassadors, <laughs> and they'll lead workshops for teachers in their local area. So mm -hmm. it's lucky because it's cut down on my staff's travel because we've got these teachers that love birds and they love the bird sleuth program. And so they'll just go out and uh, talk about it, help teachers get outside, maybe learn to use binoculars, learn to use the Merlin Bird ID app, learn to use eBird, and uh, serve as a contact for the local teachers. Hmm. Now there's an online store associated with the program, right? So teachers can decide mm -hmm. which topics they'd like to choose. Am, am I right about that? And also, what, free downloads there, too? Yeah. We uh, really try to run the gamut and reach everybody from uh, formal classroom teachers to nature center staff to parents and grandparents who just want to get their kids connected to birds. So we've got a wide variety of downloads available as well as some full curriculum kits and cards and field guides and that sort of thing that are available in our online store. Now the program, Jen, started I think with a grant from the National Science Foundation, right? So will you we need additional grants to keep it going, or is it self-sustaining at this point? Well, I, I wish that we had more money, of course, at all times, but it was originally an NSF grant, and um, we've been lucky and gotten uh, another NSF grant since then. We've gotten funding from the EPA, but to be honest, at this point, a lot of our funding comes from uh, sponsorships, some companies that donate uh, funds and products to help us reach teachers. We also get gifts from generous donors, and then, of course, the sales help as well. But in our mind, we try to make it as accessible, inexpensive, and whenever possible, free. Mm -hmm. so well, we've been lucky to get grants and gifts mm -hmm. to cover a lot of that. Indeed. So you mentioned about, uh, obviously, the schools and the nature centers and so forth. And what about just individual folks taking mm -hmm. advantage of this? Yes, well, you might remember in Maine, you met my six-year-old daughter. So right. at this point in my life as a parent, I realize the importance of getting kids outside, whether it's in formal classrooms or just on the weekends and after school time. So um, I encourage everyone to look at birdsleuth.org. It's www.birdsleuth.org and look for free downloads. We've got things like book readings for little bitty kids, kindergarten through third grade, We've got some, you know, scavenger hunt cards and bird bingo cards and that kind of thing that might, you know, suit the needs of, say, 8- to 10-year-olds. Um, so, yeah, we've got a, a whole lot of resources that I think parents and grandparents could also find useful. 
Okay, so parents, grandparents, uh, nature centers and schools and teachers yep. and administrators can all go to that uh, same website, right, to get more yep. info about it? Okay. Give us that w- address. W- it's yep. www.birdsleuth.org. Birdsleuth. Dot yes. org. Easy to easy That's to read, but correct. not hard to say sometimes. Birdsleuth.org. <laughs> yes. All right. Jennifer Fee is manager of Bird Sleuth, the K through twelve program of the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. I wish we'd had this when I was a student at the Prospect Street School in Pawtucket, Rhode Island, Jen. But I'm glad it's out there for lots of kids now. Thanks for being on with us and good luck. Thank you so much, Ray. I appreciate your time. Coming up here on Talking Birds, it's our mystery bird contest in just one minute. The North American Butterfly Association is working to increase public enjoyment and conservation of butterflies. The 100-acre National Butterfly Center in Mission, Texas, is home to native plant gardens with more than 200 species of butterflies. The climate makes visiting year-round a spectacular experience, and the center serves to educate the public as well as provide a research laboratory. NABA chapters around the country work on projects that benefit butterflies, hold nature walks, collect data, study ecology, and bring the natural world into the classroom. If we can save butterflies, we can save ourselves. Means that butterflies show us what's happening in our environment as we work to save these vital pollinators. NABA's Butterfly Garden and Habitat Program can help you create a paradise for butterflies while encouraging habitat restoration no matter the size of your area. Show your commitment to increasing butterfly populations by visiting naba.org. Our mystery bird contest here every week on our show in which we play the sound of a bird, give some clues, and invite you to call in and win a fabulous feeder from Droll Yankees, makers of the world's best bird feeders. If you're not hearing our Sunday morning show live, we do the show live from 9.30 to 10 on Sunday morning. That's Eastern Time. Uh, You think you're not able to enter our mystery bird contest? Well, there is a way to do it, and that is simply to go online to TalkingBirds.com And you can see how to listen to the show live online. It's quite easy to do wherever you are, TalkingBirds.com. We also uh, podcast our show. You can listen uh, to Talking Birds. Find us in iTunes or Google Play and on uh, many of your favorite podcasting apps. Here's the sound of our mystery bird again. By the way, our prize this morning, the Droll Yankees Ruby Sipper Hanging Hummingbird Feeder. It's Droll Yankees' newest hanging hummingbird feeder, a perfect pairing of whimsical fun and practical performance. It provides multiple feeding zones for your territorial hummingbirds, and it also features leak-proof and easy-to-fill and clean design, graceful stainless steel wire support, and a lifetime warranty. That would be the prize here. Here are the clues for our mystery bird. It's a small songbird, about four to five inches long, with a gray head, plain olive green back and wings, a yellowish throat, breast, and belly, and a white eye ring. Our bird, which feeds almost exclusively on insects, breeds over much of the northern U.S. and Canada. But it's one of the birds mentioned in our featured Feathered Fred segment this morning as a species that doesn't regularly nest in the U.S. city, for which it's named. That would be our mystery bird. What do you think it is? Tell us definitively or take a guess. As always, no correct answer means a drawing will determine our winner. 
Let's see what happens. 781-837-4900 is the number to call. That's 781-837-4900. The Droll Yankees Ruby Sipper Hanging Hummingbird Feeder is our prize this morning. 781-837-4900. Meanwhile, Blue Jays, are they really the bullies they're made out to be? We'll get some insight into that with our man Mike O'Connor down there at the Bird Watchers General Store on Cape Cod. Let's ask Mike live in just one minute. Well, Talking Birds listeners, we're getting ready to go to the Galapagos Islands. We'll be heading there in September, and we're inviting Talking Birds listeners to join us for this trip of a lifetime with one of the best small group touring companies on the planet, Sunrise Birding. More cabins have been added, but this trip will be sold out, so don't hesitate. Travel with us to one of the most amazing places in the world, home to abundant and approachable wildlife, including birds that are found nowhere else on Earth, even Galapagos penguins with whom we'll snorkel. They're the islands where Charles Darwin's research led to the groundbreaking theory of the origin of species, and we'll be there during the season when sunshine is abundant and birds and mammals are most active. Galapagos veterans rave about our tour's itinerary. We'll see places and creatures that other tours don't. I'll be your host for this unforgettable trip, along with expert local guides. Please join us. It's easy to find out more at sunrisebirding.com. That's sunrisebirding.com. Down to the Bird Watchers General Store, that legendary location there, Route 6A in Orleans, and the legendary owner, proprietor, and bird seed distributor himself, Mike O'Connor, joins us here on Let's Ask Mike. Good morning, Mike. Hey, I'm here in Cape Cod today, Ray. Uh, you're, you're on Cape Cod? Nice. <laughs> I wanted to try it. It's pretty nice. You yeah, know, I've heard I, good I, things, I, and it's, it's, it's kind of nice. Better than Nova Scotia? I mean, I know you No, Nova, Nova Scotia was good. You know, good. And, yeah. and your featured feathered friend, the boreal chickadee, we saw those up there. Yeah. The chocolate chickadee, I Cho- like to call them. I like that. Uh, yeah, well, chickadee. you know, that was the only way I could get my wife out in the trail to look for them. <laughs> Well, we're talking about a different bird uh, this time, Mike, and uh, there it is now there on the attack. Is. Yeah. Don't you love that sound? That's party on. When you hear that, you know there's something exciting going on <laughs> when the Blue Jays come. Well, people oftentimes, as you know, they say they're, they're bullies and they're gluttons and all that kind of thing. There's a reason they're a glutton. I guess we could get into that, but... Uh, what do you say about Blue Jays? We should really love them, right? Well, well, of course you should love them, except when they're yeah. playing the Red Sox. But <laughs> you should like them. First of all, they're beautiful. It's hard to pinpoint a better-looking bird. Everybody says Cardinal. Oh, please. Don't even give me that. Blue Jays are five <laughs> times more handsome than Cardinals. The other thing about Blue Jays is, you know, they say they're, they're, they're kind of aggressive and they're mean, but... They're also aggressive at hawks and other birds of prey. Mm. So when the little birds are in the yard, if I want to get a lot of birds in the yard, I put out stuff for blue jays because when the blue jays are around, the other birds feel safe because they'll sound the alarm at the first sign of trouble. Ah, good point. So, so that's, that's kind of a good thing, mm. I, would, I would say, if you like little birds. Now, back a zillion years ago, John James Audubon painted a portrait of blue jays, and one of them was holding a, a songbird egg that was broken. And since then, oh. everybody's thinks yeah. they're awful and they kill little birds and stuff. Now, mm-hmm. sometimes they do during the nesting season to feed their own nestlings, but it's tiny. Uh, one study pointed that out that it was less than 1% of the blue jays they studied actually did that. So it's really mm-hmm. minuscule. And there are plenty of other birds that do the same thing. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, and, and I think right now people are in love, especially um, young girls for some reason, maybe Harry Potter, but they're in love with owls. 
You know, they like owl earrings and pendants and pillows and pajamas. We sell all that stuff. And the little, the, you know, like the 10 year old girls think the owls are the best, but owls are the most fierce predator and they'll take out any bird that they come across. So the fact that a rare event when a blue jay does eat a, a young bird, you know, nobody likes to see that, but owls do it constantly. And falcons, you know, the most respected bird, that's all they eat a bird. So yeah. I wouldn't put them in the. And the in the mean list is all, of course, what nature does, anyways. But I would say, on the long run, blue jays uh, do more good by eating harmful insects, and certainly do more good for little birds by sounding the alarm when something bad is. And you know, I read this thing too on the in Cornell Lab site. They're t- they cite a Florida study. It says that red-bellied woodpeckers, red-headed woodpeckers, Florida scrub jays, common grackles, and gray squirrels strongly dominate blue jays at feeders, often preventing them from obtaining food. And northern bobwhites, mourning doves, white-winged doves, northern mockingbirds, and northern cardinals occasionally dominated them as well. That's kind of surprising, I think, for a lot of people, wouldn't you say? Yeah, yeah, I certainly would, especially the, the bobwhite thing. Wow. You know, they're, yeah. they're a little bit skittish in the card. Mm-hmm. No, it's, it's true. It's just, a, you know, I'm blaming that Audubon guy. You know, when I see him, you I'm going to say it. a few words to him about that. All right. And, and, you know, one more thing about the Bob White behind mm-hmm. our store a couple of days ago. It was a male Bob White calling. Right behind? Oh, good. Yeah, nice. you know, we haven't heard that on the Cape in a long time. And especially, you know, I'm just nothing but cement and truck tires and stuff. <laughs> and uh, we was out there calling. It really made my day, so... That used, still to be, hope for. that used to be a pretty common uh, sound. It used there, to be right? the, yeah. the soundtrack of Cape Cod in the summer, and it disappeared. Mm-hmm. But I've, I've got several reports this year, including near us. So uh, instead of waiting on customers, we all went out in the parking lot. <laughs> <laughs> Mike, thank you. We'll talk to you next week. Sounds great, man. All right, we're back here at the Mystery Bird Contest. Our number is 781-837-4900. Our prize is the Droll Yankees Ruby Sipper hanging hummingbird feeder. Here's the sound of our mystery bird. It's a small songbird, about four to five inches long, with a gray head, plain olive green back and wings, a yellowish throat, breast and belly, and a white eye ring. Our bird, which feeds almost exclusively on insects, breeds over much of the northern U.S. and Canada, but it's one of the birds mentioned in our featured feathered friend segment this morning as a species that doesn't regularly nest in the U.S. city for which it's named. What is our mystery bird? Tell us or take your guess. It's 781-837-4900. That's 781-837-4900. That's what it is. And Judy is in Brookline, Massachusetts. Good morning, Judy. Hi, good morning. Good morning. Nice to see the sunshine here in the eastern part of the state, isn't it? Beautiful day. Beautiful is right. Well, Judy, what do you say on the uh, mystery bird there? Well, I'm not so sure, but I'm Mm. saying a Philadelphia Vireo. Philadelphia Vireo. I can see where you're coming with that. I can see some of that description, I think. It doesn't quite have that eye ring. Yeah, uh, it's outside of that, but they're working on it. So, <laughs> Thank you, Judy. Thank you. All right. Uh, not a Philadelphia Vireo, but what is it? A small songbird, gray head, plain olive green back and wings, a yellowish throat, breast and belly, and a white eye ring. 781-837-4900 is the number to call and uh, we have Dave down there in Hillsboro, North Carolina. Good morning, Ray. Hey, good morning, Dave. How are you? I'm doing great. How about you? Uh, doing well. Uh, we have some beautiful summer weather up here, but I guess you've had that for a while down in North Carolina. 
Only six or eight months, yeah. <laughs> All right, uh, Dave, you heard that Philadelphia Vireo guests, and you heard the clues in the uh, sound of our mystery bird, and, and there it is again. Uh, what do you say our mystery bird is, Dave? It sounds like you're describing a Nashville warbler. Well, you ought to know, because you're closer to Nashville than we are. Absolutely yeah, right. Well, I have yet to see one. What did you say? You have yet to see one? I have yet to see one. Yeah, kind of famously not uh, seen a lot around Nashville, uh, I, I understand. I guess that was where it was first observed uh, by Alexander Wilson, in fact, way back in uh, 1811. So he named it that, and um, people have been looking for it ever, ever since down there in Nashville. Uh, Dave, nice work, and if you'll stay on the line, we'll get your address and send you that Droll Yankees feeder. Will do. Thanks, Ray. Thank you, Dave. Here's a weird thing. The Nashville Warbler, they tell us, sometimes uses porcupine quills as nest material. That's kind of weird. We are out of time for our show this morning. Next week, we'll be broadcasting live from Governor's Island in New York Harbor with our new friends from New York City Audubon. We'll learn about the great work they're doing for birds and about the upcoming Turn Festival right there in that beautiful island in New York Harbor. If you'll be in the area on the 2nd of July, ferry on over and say hi. Our engineer is Jesse Wilkins. I'm Ray Brown. Thanks for caring about the birds and the planet they inhabit, and we'll see you next week. <laughs> Ray Brown's Talking Birds. Made possible by the generous support of the Birdwatchers General Store. Or Leanscape Cod. Birdwatchersgeneralstore.com. By L.L. Bean. Inspiring you to get outdoors. LLBean.com. By Celestron. Offering binoculars and scopes for birders of all levels. Celestron.com. By Birds and Beans Shade Grown Bird Friendly Coffee. Birdsandbeans.com. And by Chimani. Visiting a national park? Let Chimani guide you. Chimani.com.